The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn with us to Mark chapter 7. Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn was famous for writing the line between good and evil. Passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. The human tendency is to build camps, to make alliances, to judge who belongs, who's inside and outside, who is clean, and who are the unclean. We often judge by the externals rather than the internals. Jesus, in our passage, confronts the standard bearers of his day and challenges us today as well to determine by by what standard do we measure ourselves and others? By man's or by God's standard. There's only one standard by which we are counted clean and acceptable before the living God. And let us seek understanding from God's word. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, Unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, 
But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Father, we would ask that you might enlighten our minds, that you might convict our hearts, that you might lead us in pathways of righteousness as we consider this text this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust that, uh, like our family, you have various holiday traditions. There are certain foods that my wife only makes once a year for Thanksgiving or Christmas. There are certain movies that we watch at special times of the year. The sound of music must be played while decorating the Christmas tree, just days after Thanksgiving. The hamburger dip must be consumed on Christmas Eve while we're watching It's a Wonderful Life on television. And if I or my wife or any other member or family chooses to deviate from one of these traditions, there's always at least one member of the family more than happy to play the role of the tradition police and quickly get us back in line with the family tradition. Traditions are good. They help families connect, they they build memories, but traditionalism is bad, especially when we elevate man's standards above God's standards. At issue in our text is is Jesus confronting the tradition police of his day regarding matters of, of ritual cleanliness. What is it that makes one clean, holy, and set apart before Almighty God? Are, are they ceremonies and rituals, or, or are they something else? But I want to assure you that this is not some passe issue from a bygone era. People, even today, are often consumed with what what does it mean to be in the right, to make oneself acceptable before God and others. Even in this post-enlightened era in which we live, where we are far beyond the sacrifices of bulls and sheep in the age skeptical of religious authority, people are just as religious as ever. In fact, incurably religious. Whether they belong to a church or not, we make rules. We pass judgments. We establish standards to determine what is acceptable behavior or appearance versus what is clearly out of bounds. Our text tonight challenges us 
to determine whether we are abiding by God's standards or man-made standards. You will either determine to clean yourself or permit yourself to be cleaned only by the means that God has provided. Now, this is not Jesus' first run-in with the scribes and the Pharisees. In the Gospel of Mark, earlier, Jesus challenged with why he and his disciples were eating with tax collectors and other sinners. Then again, they challenged him why his disciples did not fast. And then again, questioning why they were breaking the Sabbath law by plucking off heads of grain and eating them in the fields on the Sabbath day. And now the scribes and Pharisees question Jesus about cleansing rituals, the washing of hands and cups and, and plates for eating in a, in a clean manner. And, but I would argue that these are more than just mere theological questions because the Pharisees have already plotted with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. The tradition police were diabolically opposed to Jesus and his message. You know, the the cleanliness laws dating back in the Old Testament uh, established that if one touched a, a dead body, a person or an animal, if you had an infectious skin disease, if you came into contact with mildew, if you ate an unclean animal, uh, then you were ritually impure, and you were not permitted to enter the tabernacle or then later the temple, that you could not worship properly. You had to be cleansed and purified. And uh, these laws, this ceremonial law of of Israel, was intended to humble the people of God to recognize the reality of sin. But what had happened over the years is that the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, built up extra rules, which here is called the tradition of the elders, which put further fences around the law, which basically degenerated into a code that was designed to keep people out, to establish high standards that, that only the elite could consider themselves ritually Pure and, and the net result was it, it was abusive, dehumanizing, and was largely missing the mark of what God intended for, for the worship of his people. In response, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He, he goes after the Pharisees by quoting Isaiah's quite sharp criticism. And here Jesus does not model for us how to win friends and influence people. He calls them hypocrites. Play actors, a bold accusation made against very powerful and influential men. I can imagine the disciples being shocked. Shocked with Jesus' frequent run-ins with the Pharisees because these were the good guys. These were the descendants of those who had led Israel in revolt against a pagan king who had imposed Greek and pagan ways upon Israel centuries before. But in his zeal for truth, In righteousness, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. And Jesus demonstrates for us a man who knows who he is, a man who has given himself over to the Father's will, a man who is dead already, able to be bold before those with the power to destroy him. It reminds us that one who has been 
in the presence of God finds men much less intimidating. Consider Moses before Pharaoh. Consider Peter and John before the Sanhedrin later in the book of Acts. And so we come to this stinging indictment from Isaiah that critiques the people who, who honor God with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. They are merely going through the motions. We had guys like this on my football team in high school, those who would only go half speed when the coaches weren't looking, who would skip reps in the gym and in the weight room. A hypocrite is one who doesn't give his or her all, but only pretends to, only to appear as though giving one's best. Cain had this problem and was rebuked by God. But rather than repent, Cain killed his brother. Jesus is essentially calling the Pharisees Cainites. Is any wonder that they desired to kill him? But I would argue that the Pharisees' problem is our problem. We too are tempted by the world, the love of pleasure, laziness, the desire to appear respectable, to offer up a superficial commitment to follow Jesus. The church across this land is filled with behaviors rather than believers and consequently raise up their children to do the same. We can be misguided by an obsession with externals rather than embracing an internal reality. We forget that while man looks at the outward appearance, God is concerned with the heart. This was the purpose of the holiness laws of the Old Testament, to crush human pride, to do reveal, to show us our sin, to lead us to cry out to God for mercy. But instead, over time, God's people kept lowering God's standards to make it more doable. In verse 8, Jesus says that the Pharisees leave the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. They were guilty of elevating man's rules above God's law. He raises the issue of korban, the ritual in which a man might devote his possessions to the work of the priesthood, to the maintenance of the temple sacrifices. And that was a a very worthy thing to do, something commendable, something that a pious man uh, was fully in his right to do. But what if tragedy strikes that man after he had made such a commitment? And such so that he cannot support his family or his ill-stricken parents? Well, the, the rabbis had ruled that a man who had devoted his goods to the temple cannot undo his oath, even to provide for his own family. And of course, the result was destitution. The attitude of the Pharisees was, well, too bad. Not our problem. And thus, they elevated tradition above the clear word of God. Honor your father and your mother. You see, the the issue is the same regarding when Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. The tradition police thought that the Sabbath rules should prevail over the needs of people. But in response, Jesus taught that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. These blind guides made the word of God void by their traditions. They disregarded duty for the appearance of piety. 
Now, modern people might dismiss these various ancient issues and deny the ritual uncleanliness or, or any notion that we need to appease the holy wrath of Almighty God. But we would contend that, that all people, both the religious and the irreligious, struggle mightily with guilt and shame. Where does this come from? In an age in which we profess not to believe in judgment or sin, nevertheless feel that there is something gravely wrong with us. People have a deep sense that they must hide their true selves or, or perhaps control other people's perceptions of us. We desperately feel like we aren't acceptable. We have to prove ourselves to ourselves and others that we are somehow worthy or valuable. We are driven to achieve some goal, to please somebody, even if they are dead, while ridden with grave doubts. We have a sense that it is never, ever enough. Somehow, we can never truly be clean. We do live in an age that's quite obsessed with cleanliness, with cleaning products coming left and right. My, my wife and I are a bit obsessed, I would say, with cleanliness, and our children are trying to break us of that pattern. And there's these arguments over chemical, chemicals versus natural approach to cleanliness. And my wife has these Norwex cloths that is a chemical-free effort to remove dirt and bacteria from glass and Mirrors. I heard this ad on the radio the other day about some cleaning product for your jewelry. I mean, how obsessed can we get? We're just cleaning every little thing to eliminate all bacteria. Well, what, what do we make of this? What, what is our obsession with cleanliness? I, I believe that it's reflective of our desire to make rules, to, to make rules that are perhaps attainable to us, but use them to control others. In fact, we cast religion to feel better about ourselves. We appoint priests in society who determine for us who's in, who's out. We psychologize sin and explain it away. Everyone's a victim, and nobody is responsible. We're a culture that tolerates hypocrisy among our leaders and ourselves. People in the church put on their game face to pretend everything is fine, to mask their dissension, resentment, abuse, and control issues at home. If only people knew what went on behind closed doors. Pharisaical believers are driven by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. To please men rather than to please the living God. To appear acceptable to others rather than to be found truly acceptable before God through the blood of Christ. The world is not divided between the good guys and the bad guys, between those who stand in their own righteousness and those who stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. Well, Jesus calls all of us out in verses 14 through 23 where he says, hear me, all of you, and understand. That, that's a command to listen. He says that nothing on the outside that goes into a person defiles that person. Rather, it's the things that come out of a person that make him or her unclean. 
sin is not what is out there. Sin is what is in here. Nothing on the outside, not a dead animal, even a dung heap or a cesspool is near as foul as the human heart. Yet the disciples still didn't get it. They asked Jesus, he has to repeat himself in verse 18, and then he gets very graphic in verse 19. Well, what a man eats and is expelled from the body goes past the heart through the stomach. And that doesn't make a man unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. Many people were disturbed this past week to see a 30-minute video on Facebook of teenagers torturing a special needs man. I heard on the radio someone asking, how in the world could this happen? One more sign of the fallen condition of the human heart. What is wrong with the world, people ask, with racism, corruption, human trafficking, divorce, abuse, lawsuits of all kinds? Jesus says, we are what's wrong. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Well, well, if that did the trick, you know, you could do that. It'd be painful. It would be grotesque, but you could actually accomplish something. The problem solved. You can't remove your own heart, though. That would lead to death. But God's word promises that God can give us a new heart. That you and I need a heart transplant by the work of the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to us. That will make us truly clean. But some people try to be clean by avoiding things. Dirty movies, dirty pictures, bad people, smoking, drinking, and the list goes on. And and these may very well be good things to avoid, but doing so won't make you clean. Other people try to be clean by doing things, by serving in the church, by becoming a missionary, praying for missionaries, read your Bible, serving, volunteering at the library, and so forth. Those are all good things to do. But none will make you clean. In fact, these things can actually make you more anxious, wondering, have I avoided enough bad stuff? Or have I done enough good things? Friends, that's religion. The gospel says that our cleanliness is separate from the things you do or the things you avoid. It's knowing and trusting Jesus Christ. That only through him can God make us clean by his life, his death, his resurrection and intercession for us. You know, in this modern world in which we live, this modern post-Christian age, at one time was quite convinced that we were making improvements human progress, that we were leaving behind barbaric violence in the past, and then along came the world wars of the early 20th century. The rise of totalitarian states that killed millions of their own peoples. Capitalistic greed. The West turning a blind eye towards humanitarian nightmares more recently in Rwanda and and just recently in Syria. Our efforts to improve the human beast through education, medical science, and institutions, has failed because it has neglected the core issue. What is wrong with humanity is at the heart level. Jeremiah 2, 22 says that although you wash yourself with soda 
and use an abundance of soap. The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. So how do we become clean? At the end of verse 19, Mark offers one of his rare comments uh, where Jesus has declared by the statement that all foods were now clean. And we believe that Jesus was not dismissing the ceremonial cleanliness laws of the Old Testament as though they were outdated, that we're enlightened now, we're moving on. Rather, what he is saying is he has fulfilled what those ceremonial rituals meant to serve, that, that he has met those requirements. And so we no longer follow the rites of hand-washing and pot-washing and couch-washing or eating certain foods and any more than we continue to sacrifice animals to atone for our sins. The lamb has been slain. The one so- final sacrifice for sins has been made. The one who makes us clean has fulfilled all righteousness for us. Jesus repeats himself in verse 20, just to make sure we get it. That is not what goes into a person that makes him or her unclean. But in the verses 21 to 23, he offers one of the longer vice lists of the New Testament. We can imagine the disciples perhaps being shell-shocked by these these firebombs aimed at raising up self-awareness of their own sin-sick hearts. As I read this list, I'm thinking, perhaps these were the vices that Jesus was writing on the ground before the Pharisees in John chapter 8 when he was defending the woman caught in adultery. Just consider this list. Evil thoughts, resentment, fantasizing your rival's downfall, sexual immorality, Last week, two weeks ago, we were at a missions conference, and one of the speakers talked about one of the main hindrances to our gospel witness, one click at a time. Acknowledging a staff that 90% of our young men, 30% of our young women are tangled up with internet porn addictions. God desires his people to be holy, to flee unrighteousness, to become self-controlled, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, to lead lives not in pagan lust like the heathen who do not know God. The glory of God, the redemption of the nations is at stake. Jesus mentions theft, whether it's failing in our tithe, robbing your employer of productive labor, lying on taxes or insurance claims, murder. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he who hates his brother in his heart is a murderer. Right, the best speaker at our conference last week in Indianapolis was an Iranian pastor from Dallas, Texas. He grew up in Houston. His father was a medical doctor. They went back to Iran in the 70s when he was a little boy, returned to the States during the, the Iranian hostage crisis at the end of the Carter administration, and they suffered hatred of, from Americans hating them because they were Iranian and Muslim and throwing rocks through their windows. He was bullied at school. But in the second grade, this man, he had, had a tutor, a, t- a tutor who tutored him in English, who 
was a Christian. And at one point, she gave him a New Testament. And he said in his message that had anybody else given him that Bible, he would have thrown it away. He hated Christians for the way they treated him. But she loved him and poured her life into him such that though he ignored that New Testament for the better part of 10 years, he went through a crisis his senior year of high school. He found that New Testament, read it, found a group of Christians, and got saved. He suffered the rejection of his father when he left Islam. He suffered again years later when he turned down a free ride to med school to pursue the Christian ministry. And now leads a very effective outreach to Muslims. What's your attitude towards Muslims? Towards refugees, towards the unclean coming through our porous borders of our Christian nation. Beware the murderous heart of hatred. Jesus points out adultery. Physical adultery, fantasies of the mind, the heart, the discontent with one's spouse, perhaps being hypercritical or withholding affection, all leading to this grave sin. Coveting, the discontent of material wealth, comparing oneself, obsessing over other people's prosperity, deceit, padding resume, misleading others, you have an elevated view of yourself, taking credit where others deserve it. The sin of sensuality, loving pleasure, the addiction of food, the substance, entertainment, slander, the love of gossip, bearing false witness, committing character assassination, pride, the mother of all sins, and one inflated view of one's own self-importance, and lastly, foolishness, that, that reckless tendency to make rash decisions, failing to seek wisdom. He gives us a thorough list to examine ourselves. At the end of this month, I'll be leading a five-part series to help men struggling with purity issues, how to leave darkness to walk in the light, to walk before God and with their fellow brothers in freedom, to leave behind a life of bondage to addiction. And I've found over the years in this ministry that, that men are reluctant to pursue this kind of ministry, perhaps out of pride, thinking that they can fix it themselves and don't need help, but they're wrong. Some are in despair, having lost hope, convinced that God has given up on them. But there's also the reluctance that comes from shame, the fear of condemnation from church people, bearing the dreaded label like a leper, feeling unclean. You know, it's easy For those of us who don't struggle with something, to look down with disdain on people who do. I challenge you, fellow sinner, to examine your own heart, to uproot the issues of judgmentalism and self-righteousness, to be wary of the spirit of Phariseeism in your attitude towards other sinners. Yes, we must be bold to call out sin, to confront it, to call it what it is. But be compassionate towards fellow sinners to pray for them that they might find true cleansing at the feet of Jesus Christ. In ancient Israel, in preparation for the Day of Atonement, 
the high priest would, would remove himself a full week in advance in a place of seclusion to avoid anything unclean. Clean foods were brought to him to eat. And then the night before that great day, he would spend the whole night in prayer, reading God's word in order to purify his soul, going into the holy of holies. And on that day, he would bathe himself from head to toe in, in robe in a unstained, fresh, new, white linen garment. And then he would enter into the holy of holies to make sacrifice for his own sins. But then he would come out and he would bathe once again and put on a, another new fresh linen before entering back into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for the priest. And then for a third time, he would repeat the whole process, bathing and re-robing in order to make sacrifice for the sins of all Israel. And all this was done in public for all the people to see, to, to observe and witness the drama, to make sure that he did it right. And, you know, there are stories that they would cheer on the high priest to encourage him to be as holy and as pure as possible. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet's given a vision of the high priest Joshua on the Day of Atonement standing before God in white garments that are desecrated with human excrement. And the prophet despairs. How in the world could this be? This, this high priest who has washed and purified himself, and he is made to understand that this is how a holy God sees man, even the high priest, despite his best efforts. It's like casting a UV light on a surface or a garment, exposing all the contaminants. And that, that way God sees the filth of our fallen human hearts. And just when the prophet Zechariah was about to despair, God speaks and commands the removal of Joshua's filthy garments and replaces it with a pure white garment to make intercession for the people and then promises the coming of a servant, the branch who will remove sin from the land in a single day. And it would be centuries later that another Joshua would enter Jerusalem a week before Passover, who would be up all night long, not in prayer and study, but being falsely accused at a mock trial, stripped, whipped, and crucified. And he would not be cheered on by the people, rather jeered, an object of scorn and desecration, spit at becoming unclean, taking to himself all the contaminants of the people of God, past, present, and future, to make you and I clean by his perfect sacrifice. If you want to be clean, there is only one way, by being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your need. Confess your failure to be clean in your own standard and your own righteousness and come be washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let us pray. We praise you, O God, for meeting us in our need and our weakness and our failings to wash and purify us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
May we be a people who, who walk in the righteousness of Christ as we bear witness to the truth of the gospel among our neighbors, among the nations, as we go about our work this week. We pray this in Christ's precious name.